You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Matthew 8, 18 to 27. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sam. Let's pray and ask for God's guidance as we spend uh, some time reflecting on this passage. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask now that you would speak very clearly to us, your church. We're a people who are very distracted. We live in a distracted age. We're a people who are also very uh, confused. And we are a people who desperately need to know that there is a God out there who has created this world. He's made order in this world. And he's working now even to help us to see him more clearly and to know his ways, that we might serve his creation well. So speak to you for your church listens, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Well, I think as as some of you know, or at least a lot of you know, I spend most of my free time coaching youth soccer. I played quite a bit of soccer in my childhood. I had some good coaches and some bad coaches, and I think I feel obligated to at least give back some of my time uh, to coaching. That's actually how I have this beautiful red glow to my face. It's not a spray tan, in case you're wondering where I got it. It's all natural. Not good. Not good. Um, But recently, my daughter started playing for a soccer club, and I got a chance to be an assistant coach to a woman who is a a fabulous soccer player, who's had professional playing experience, played for her national club, and has aspirations to be a coach for her national team one day, and she is phenomenal. And I find myself sort of learning how to play soccer again, trying, uh, figuring out and learning how tactics work and and how to coach again, and every time uh, we have a practice set up, she has a wonderful job of planning out all the training. There's always a knowledge component that she wants to pass on to the girls during the training. She wants them to know how to, they, she wants them to know something about the game and how to do something. And she wants to give them skills to master. But what is most important to her before the practice ends is that she wants these students to have a, these, these uh, soccer players, these young soccer players, to have a feel for how the skill is used in real game time experience, okay? You know, so it's one thing to teach a kid how to dribble a soccer ball with their head up. 
It's quite another thing to teach them how to dribble a soccer ball with speed and pace as someone's chasing them and as someone's coming from the side with their head up looking for a pass, you know? It's quite one thing to teach a kid how to turn their foot to the side and receive a pass nicely so that it stays within their possession. It's quite another thing to teach them to do that while someone is pushing up against their back. You, you, you know, you understand? And she's always saying this phrase that I catch myself saying now, you've got to get a feel for this. You have got to get, you've got to understand how this feels, Okay. It's one thing to know how to do the skills. Lots of people can do the skills, but you have to have a feel for how this works in the game time situation. Now, it's interesting to me that um, it seems as though there was an era of Christianity, from best I can tell, following the Second World War especially, okay, where people would go to these large gatherings called revival meetings. There was a big one that happened down at Maple Leaf Square Gardens with Billy Graham. And there would be people in the audience who would hear this good news of Jesus Christ, this message of who Jesus is and what it means that he died for sins, all this language that seems sort of encoded in church worlds. He died for sins. He rose from the dead. And almost extraordinarily, people would hear that news, and they would say, I want to follow this Jesus. And in fact, in Billy Graham's case down here at Maple Leaf Square Gardens, they would come down the stairs and come forward for prayer. And their lives would completely change. There's people in this room who had that kind of experience. They heard this good news of Jesus, and their life completely changed. It was like a lack of knowledge, and when some knowledge, something happened, it came into their ears and into their head, everything changed. Now, I'm not smart enough nor qualified enough to make large, sweeping, sort of sociological observations, but I have noticed that at least in our neighborhood, from the best I can tell, people don't lack knowledge as it relates to who Jesus Christ is. In fact, anyone who's curious about Christianity has a huge advantage that they can go on the internet and hear some of the best preaching in the world on the internet. Any question they have, you can ask, you know, Google or man, even ChatGPT. You know, you can ask your questions, and, and it's not a lack of data that's kind of holding back people from committing to Christianity, at least the best I can tell. There's a lot of bad data out there, so it's part of the problem. But at least in our church, as I've watched people explore and wrestle through Christianity, there's a desire for people to know, what does this feel like to follow Jesus? I hope I'm making some sense to you, okay? It's not just a lack of knowledge. It's, I know that this group of people holds to some very difficult social issue positions. What does it feel like to say Jesus is really the king? And, you know, we had a baptism a couple weeks ago where, you know, without divulging any confidence, someone wrestled through that question, what does this feel like for a long time? And it seems to me that part of what it's going to look like to be a church that faithfully shares the good news of Jesus Christ to our neighbors, to anyone who might come in and witness is we've got to learn to be a church who not only passes on information, but provides experiences where people can understand what it feels like to follow Christianity. We've got to expect that this, this pattern of conversion might take some time for people as they're trying to get a feel for it. As I'm looking at this particular passage here, and as we think about what Jesus is doing here, we have three stories of someone who's interested, people or groups of people who are following Jesus or are interested in following Jesus, and it seems as though Jesus wants to give them a feel for what discipleship is, is going to feel like, what, it, what it's going to feel like deep in their bones. You may remember a couple of, for, for a while, actually, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. In a sense, Jesus gives sort of his kingdom manifesto. He says, if you want to understand who I am, I am like a king who's rolling into this earth, and my kingdom is going to expand over the entire earth. There's a new regime coming in. He gives this wonderful sermon in Matthew 5 through 7 called the Sermon on the Mount where he says, this is 
what, what things are going to look like in my kingdom. This is what it's going to be. When my kingdom reign takes place, there will not be a hungry mouth. You know, people will not respond with hatred towards enemy, but love towards enemy. He sets out this manifesto that I think a lot of us find, this is, this is beautiful. This is what we want. And then after this manifesto now, he, he's beginning to show the power that this kingdom will bring in. Last week, we saw him heal, you know, three different types of sickness. And the passage last week ended, you may remember, because I know you remember everything I say in the sermons, you know, that a large crowd of people came to be healed. And, and, and we read, actually, in, a, in the region that Jesus was in, every sickness was healed. There's not a doctor in the room who could say that they've had that kind of experience. Every sickness healed. Every evil spirit healed. After these three sort of healing stories, Jesus then gives us these interactions about discipleship, okay? And all of these stories are linked together in your bulletin. You can see in your bulletin the word follow, verse 19, verse 22, and verse 23. It's this theme of of these people are trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I think what Jesus is doing here is he wants you and me and these original people that he's interacting with, he wants them to get a feel for what discipleship is going to be like. It's one thing to know what his kingdom is going to be like and what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom, at least intellectually. It's quite another to know what it's going to feel like on the ground. And what he's doing is he's telling us that following him, discipleship with him, is going to feel paradoxical. It's going to constantly feel like there is a tension mounting and it's about to snap. The rubber band's being pulled as tight as it can. And this is what life in his kingdom is going to look like. It is going to look like experiencing absolute security, and absolute vulnerability at the exact same time. At the exact same time. This is what it's going to feel like. And this is what it's going to feel like for those of you here who are trying to figure out, should I follow Jesus? What is it going to feel like? Let me tell you what it's going to feel like. It's going to feel like absolute security and absolute vulnerability at the exact same time. Now, where do I see this? We have these three stories. Let's, let's think about first this absolute vulnerability. You know, um, we've been wrestling, through, we're wrestling through this question. What does it feel like to follow Jesus? To be a person who's faithfully following Jesus, being a faithful citizen of his kingdom. And I think these three stories all are tied together in some ways by saying it feels like an absolute vulnerability sort of being exposed in your life, feeling absolutely vulnerable. Where do we see this? Well, there's three interactions, okay? Let's walk through them. The first, we have these great crowds uh, that are starting to come. And Jesus is saying, look, my job isn't to grow a great crowd. Uh, my mission is much, more big, is much bigger than just purely getting a crowd in one area. So he says, let's go to the other side. And then he's confronted by a scribe. Now, in Matthew's telling of the life of Jesus, scribes are generally bad people. They generally become the opponents of Jesus. They're the scholars. You might think of them as like the seminary professors or the people working at university. Uh, their job was somewhat different, though, pre, uh, you know, sort of mass printing. Their, their daily duties included handwriting and ensuring that proper transmission of the Hebrew text was passed along. But these were people who knew their Bible well, the Old Testament well. They knew their traditions well. And he comes to Jesus and surprisingly says, I will follow you wherever. Okay? He tells to Jesus, he says to Jesus, whatever you, I saw you do with these healings, whatever I heard you t- teach in the Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't matter. I will follow you wherever. And Jesus responds with this cryptic saying, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What is Jesus doing? Well, it might not be immediately obvious to you, but it is immediately more obvious to the original first readers that what Jesus is saying is this. God's creatures on this earth, both the fox and the bird, 
they have homes. They have places of security where they can know that they can go and be safe and be rested. And Jesus is telling this scribe, if you want to follow me, you want to know what it feels like? It's going to feel like extreme vulnerability. Maybe something like homelessness, rootlessness. It will feel like you don't fit in. You have no proper place to raise your head. The fox knows where it's supposed to go. It's supposed to go to the hole. The bird knows where it's supposed to go. They have nests. Jesus is saying, you want to follow my kingdom? You want to know what it feels like? It's going to feel like the vulnerability that comes with not knowing where you fit in or how you fit in. Story number two, a disciple comes and says, uh, I want to follow you, Jesus, but first let me, let me go and bury my father. Now, this request seems reasonable, and it actually is very reasonable in uh, the ancient Near East. The Old Testament law actually had very, very strict regulations on burials and how the duties with which, especially an oldest son, had towards their parents, towards their father. It, it might seem cruel that, you know, if you have a vision that sort of this man died, and he's, he's saying to Jesus, let me just finish up the funeral, then I'll come follow you. More than likely what this story is saying, at least from the best I can tell and from the best scholars I could find, is that this man is saying, uh, Jesus, I want to follow you. I intend to follow you with my entire life, but listen, I have familial obligations. I must take care of my father. It is my duty. And it seems as though this man has no idea how long his father will live, but he's saying, let me, let me do the right thing. Let me be the good, good son first. Then I will go and follow you. And Jesus is absolutely being harsh. He's not, he's not trying to be gentle here. But he's trying to get across this to this man. He says, listen, let those who are dead go bury the dead. He's saying, I'm coming to bring something new as it relates to life. And if you want to follow me, it's going, to be, it's going to be a greater demand than those familial demands that are upon you. Jesus isn't saying we ought not honor our father and mother. We ought not take care of them. What he is saying, though, is that to be his disciple is to, be, is to hear a command much louder, much clearer, much more demanding than even such an ordinary and common but important command to rightly honor your father. To be his disciple is a call for allegiance that's so much greater than anything else that could call for your attention. To be his disciple is to feel then incredibly vulnerable because you're disconnected from the one social safety net in this world which would have caught you and rested you, you secure. You, your call and allegiance to Christ must come without reservation. And at times, it's going to feel like being alienated from your family, from those who are closest to you. What does it feel like to be a disciple? Jesus is saying it feels like being absolutely vulnerable. Absolutely vulnerable because the call to him is greater than the most obvious call in your life, which is to your father and mother, honoring properly your parents. Third vignette, Jesus' followers follow him into the boat. They don't convince him to go into the boat. He goes into the boat. They follow him. No small detail. They get into the boat. They intend to go to the other side of the sea. These are fishermen that we know Jesus has called up to this point in a large storm brews. If you've been to this part of, of Israel, you know that this is actually still a common experience today. The lake is the, the lake uh, Galilee is below sea level, and storms can sort of kick up as it relates to the various mountains and hills that are near there. And a large storm begins to uh, overwhelm the boat. They think that they are going to capsize. And where's Jesus? The one who first went into the boat, and they followed him? Where is he? He's asleep. He's asleep. Those waves just toss and turn him, and he feels like he's in a safe place. In his mother's womb being tossed and turned, he's resting well. And what do these professional fishermen do? 
Well, it's certainly the last thing you need help with as a boat is going down is a carpenter to come help you. And yet, what do they feel they need to do? They wake him up and they say clearly to him, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. And what does Jesus do? He awakes. He awakes. And he says, Why are you so afraid, you of little faith? Now, why were they so afraid? It's not a trick question. They were capsizing. <laughs> You'd be afraid too. They wake Jesus up. He answers their cry. We'll talk about how this story concludes, but let me just reiterate this point. What does it feel like to follow Jesus, to be a faithful citizen of his kingdom, to follow him as he steps foot in the boat, to follow him as you go in the boat? What's it going to feel like? Well, how did it feel for these first disciples? It feels like vulnerability. It feels like absolute vulnerability. They followed Jesus well and properly and now they are on the verge of death. There are many men, and I'm presuming some women, who, who as they go to the boat, say, you know what, I don't feel like, I, I, I don't know about Jesus yet. I'm not going to follow him across the sea. That seems a bit much. And as they saw the clouds sort of billow in and the storms build up, there are many people safe on the shore saying, boy, I'm glad I didn't follow him. I think I made the right decision. Something was off, and now the storm comes. But what did Jesus' true disciples experience? Following him means being led into seasons, into seasons of extreme turmoil, of extreme pain. It, it feels like being absolutely vulnerable. What is Jesus doing? Jesus knows something about the mission that he's on. He knows the fact that as he rolls out this kingdom of heaven, as he tries to set the world into the place that it was always intended to be, and as he calls people to, to follow him and to help him sort of usher in this new reign, this new rule where the world, where all is set to order, he knows what it's going to feel like. And it's going to feel like vulnerability. And he wants them to get tastes of that. How could I illustrate this? I don't know about you, but I found myself this week sort of captivated by this um, small submarine that was exploring, you know, the wreckage of the Titanic. I don't know why, but our society went a little crazy with it, little tickers on the side of CNN telling us how many minutes of air left. It was a little sad how much it became a spectacle. What, what, what we eventually learned, at least to the best of what I've learned, is that there seems to be an implosion at some point. That something happened in the descent of this submarine, and that as the pressure, as they got deeper and deeper, the pressure became greater and greater on this submarine. And it got to the point where the pressure outside and the pressure inside were at such a mismatch that this, this submarine imploded. It didn't explode, it imploded, it sort of caved in on itself like a can, sort of in a fire, just sort of, uh, sort of crumbling up upon itself. And what, what I learned is this thing could only descend, it had, to, it had to regulate its descent into the water so that the pressure was balanced out. Some of you are better at this than me and you're just sitting there thinking, Kyle, you've got no idea, just be careful. <laughs> it had to descend very slowly so that the pressure was properly sort of, uh, the boat didn't take on all the pressure at the same time. I think this in some senses illustrates what Jesus is trying to do here. He's saying, listen, if you want to follow me, it's at times going to mean that you're going to feel homeless, you're going to feel like you have to spend a huge amount of your wealth, on, on th you're going to give it away to things which might not pan out to be as beneficial as you thought. It means you're going to have to have times where you feel alienated from your family, from your neighbor, from the society around you, your coworkers. You're going to feel disconnected, you're going to feel vulnerable. If you're going to follow me at times, from your limited perspective, you're going to feel like the ship is sinking. And Jesus knows that this extreme vulnerability is part of discipleship, and so what is he doing? In a sense, he's slowly lowering him into that pressure, that mounting pressure. 
He's slowly dipping them in so they can get tastes of what it feels like to follow him. So they don't implode. If he dumps all this on them right away at the cross, they're going to implode. None of their faith would sustain. He's giving them small tastes of what it feels like to follow him. Jesus is rolling out a new kingdom. He's inviting his disciples to be part of this kingdom, to be leaders of this kingdom. But he knows ultimately where it's heading. He knows it will include his own death his own descent into the grave, and he wants to prepare his disciples for that. He wants them to taste these small and slow submersions of the pressure so they know what it feels like to be part of his kingdom. You see, following Jesus at its core, if you're here and you're trying to figure out this question of who is Jesus and what does it feel like to follow him, it does feel like being vulnerable. In fact, the very first thing you do if you rightly follow after, follow after Jesus is that you, 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 would, you open your mouth and you admit the one thing society tells you you should never do. You admit that you're a phony. That all, that all your life you've been performing in front of the God who made you. That you've been trying to build up a case that you might not be the best human being, but you're certainly better than a couple of the guys down the street or a couple of the ladies that you know at work. And the first step in really following after Christ, when you understand what he's calling you to do and be, is to, is to be extremely vulnerable and to say, I agree with your assessment of me. I know... You know my thought patterns. I know you know all my life. I know you know how I operate, and I am not the person I ought to be. And there were times when I compounded and made things worse. This isn't just purely out of habit. It's also very intentional. I am what the Bible calls sinful. This is the first step of following Christ. And that's what Jesus wants to give us a taste and a feel of to these first disciples. It feels like being absolutely vulnerable. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. It's not just the absolute vulnerability of being rejected by friends, family members, not fitting in well to your professional world. It's not just the vulnerability of feeling like he led you right into a storm. He also, paradoxically, gives us a chance to feel absolutely secure. Because we see some great security experience, at least in the third story, most clearly, as the the waves are crashing in over the water. They wake up Jesus in, in the midst of their panic. And what does he do to them? You might say, well, he calms the storm. Well, he doesn't do that right away. What does he do first? Because of his great love to them as they cry out to him, save us, we are perishing. What he first does, maybe his water is ankle deep in this boat. As it seems like there's a matter of seconds left, he takes the time to rebuke them. He takes the time to rebuke them. That's how much he loves them. That is how much he cares for them in the midst of this situation. They heard the authority of his word at the Sermon on the Mount. They had seen his authority of his word in action and these healings that we looked at last week. But one thing they were unsure about is how great is that authority that he has. You saw it in the call to worship. They would have sung it their entire life. Psalm 29, Psalm 65, Psalm 89, Psalm 107, parts of Job. Only God Only the Creator can sustain the waters. we got a lot of control in our society over a lot of things, but I'll tell you what, we have very little control over, say, hurricanes whipping up over the ocean. Still to this day, there's a certain fear and reality that that comes when you think of the waters, the power of the waters. They cry out to Jesus to save them, but they have very little faith. Very little faith. And Jesus, out of love, rebukes them first. Oh, you of little faith. But here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't pull up the blanket and go back to sleep. What does he do? He gets out of bed. And while they are in the midst of their panic, while they lack courage, while they're in a situation where they feel incredibly exposed and vulnerable, he shows them the great security, 
the absolute security with which it means to be part of his people. With one word, he quiets the sea. He commands the sea, and it stops. The chaos comes to an end by his words, something we still can't do today with all of our technological advances, something we would love to do as it relates to storm seasons rolling in. And sure enough, that which is chaos is brought to order by his very word, by his very word. He's teaching them about the security that's going to come, and the channel or the means by which it's going to come is it's going to come through faith. They had taken courage in their own abilities. They had had, they had, had faith in their own skills and self-confidence. When that ran out, then they turned to another. Then they turned to Jesus, and he rescued them. This is the incredible security that comes with being a part of God's people, being close to Jesus. Utter chaos in your life, and yet a deep and robust security. This is the paradox. This is what it feels like. I mean, Jesus is coming in and bringing a kingdom, and he's promising he has this kind of power. He's got the, the kind of power that all these superhero movies are about. You know, no one goes to these superhero movies saying, boy, I wonder if Spider-Man's going to do it this time. No. You have absolute confidence, you know, absolute faith. That the reason you're sitting in this uh, superhero uh, film is because you know that they're going to do it. This is why I just don't really understand why people love these things. Like, do you gasp when he finally rescues the world? Of course he's going to rescue the world. That's what he is. He's a superhero. And f you, you, you go into that theater with, with a robust faith, knowing things are going to be fine at the end, because there's a superhero involved. So also, this is what faith looks like. It looks like not a strong self-confidence. It looks like, uh, sometimes it looks immature in the form of a panic. But it says there's got to be someone who can do something about this. Come and rescue me. This is out of my grasps. Help. And though Jesus says their faith is little, and though their faith is immature or small, he's up for the challenge. And his power overwhelms the chaos that exists in the storm. And those who felt most vulnerable now probably feel more secure than any other human being in this world. They say, who is this? They're terrified, and yet they're absolutely secure. Leads us into a storm, and yet he can still the storm. Who is like this? Who is like this? Listen, this is what it feels like to follow after Christ. Listen closely to me. It, it will at times feel like leaving your father and mother. It will feel like times uh, being alienated from general society, not being able to participate and celebrate things that your coworkers are doing this weekend. It's going to feel like you have nowhere to lay your head and the fox has a hole. The bird has a place to rest. You have no connection to the society. It's going to feel that way and it's going to feel like you're utterly, utterly exposed and yet at the same time, I promise you, when this, with the smallest outfits of faith, when you call it to Christ, you're going to feel secure like you've never felt before as well. He's going to provide for you a family greater than the one that he has given to you. He's going to find, provide for you a home that goes on into eternity. A home in which the doors are always open, where there's always food at the table. A home in which you are, you are secure and rested. As surely as he stills the storm in this boat, he promises not only this extreme vulnerability, but this extreme security. This is what it feels like to follow Christ. It feels like the rubber band's being pulled one way or the other constantly. Constantly. And this is why we have these stories here. This is what it feels like. Let me conclude this way. I know it's hot. Some of you are are, uh, you know, showing me that it's hot by either fanning, your, fanning yourself or telling me, wrap it up, it's almost time. <laughs> Look, in conclusion, Jesus rebukes his disciples for their little faith. But notice that he doesn't go back to sleep. He could have set up another story like Jonah, where a large fish swallows them and brings them to the other side. He doesn't. No. Even with their small faith, because it's 
directed at the right object. He hears their cry, and he rescues. Their immature faith was enough. Their faith in the right object, because they turn to the right place, God hears. Maybe I say it this way. You know, there's this, this innocent and humble, naive faith that children have towards their father. You know, if, if my kids were on a, when, when they were little at least, they're getting smarter now, they have less faith in me, but if we were on an airplane when, you know, when we were little and there seemed to be chaos going and maybe over the mic they said the pilot is, you know, passed out, we need, we need someone to come land this plane. You know, my kids have the type of faith in me that they'd say, my daddy can land this plane. <laughs> That's, that is strong, strong faith, but it's in the wrong object because that plane would be going down and you'd be reading about it later, right? But the most humble and smallest grain of faith and the strongest of object is always secure, is always confident, okay? So, my, you know, we find out that there is a, a pilot on the airplane, and we think, well, what if he's lying? Like, we have no way to check his credentials. We have to trust him. And with great doubt, we say, well, I guess you're better than the rest of us to land the plane. But there's some serious doubts. Has he flown a plane this big? Has he flown in a while? You know, is this the right person? Look, the degree of your faith in one real sense is almost inconsequential compared to the object of your faith. So long as your object is into someone who, is, who can accomplish what needs to be accomplished, you are secure. And this is what Jesus is teaching us about discipleship. No matter how much confidence you have in the wrong stock investment, when it goes down, you are without hope. And no matter how doubtful you are as you follow the advice of an investment advisor and that, that investment matures, so also your money matures. What am I trying to say? The disciples turn to the right person at the right time. And though their faith is immature, though it is small, though it is unformed, though it is little, Jesus awakes and he rescues. What I'm saying is this. Don't wait till you have all the answers to cry out to our God in Jesus Christ. Don't wait until you've exhausted every intellectual question that bothers you. Don't wait till everything feels perfect and then decide that you'll cry out to Jesus. Your faith will grow in the midst of immature moments crying out to the right object, to the right person. Cry out to the Lord, whatever storm you might be feeling overwhelmed with, whatever way in which you feel right now incredibly vulnerable, cry out to the Lord. And I assure you, as surely as Christianity right now in your life feels like being incredibly vulnerable and exposed, I assure you our Lord will arrive. He will show up as He always does. You can ask any of these people who've walked with the Lord for some season of time. It's in their most vulnerable moments when they felt all is lost that they also found the deepest security in Christ. This is always how He works. I assure you, what I'm saying is this, no matter how weak or thin your faith is, if you're feeling vulnerable now, call out to Christ. And if you're walking with Christ right now and you're saying it just doesn't feel right, everything seems to be going wrong, call out afresh to this Christ because this is what it will always feel like. Extreme, intense vulnerability and extreme and intense security colliding constantly. This is the, world, this is the Christ that we follow and he's here today to provide this kind of security for us. Let me pray. Father, I know there are people in this room, I'm looking some of them in the eyes, whose life has felt incredibly chaotic, and they feel incredibly, incredibly vulnerable and exposed, and they think, one more bad week, and I might not be able to maintain it. Show your mighty hand, Father. Still the storms. Send your Son to draw near to us by the power of your Spirit, that we might know the great and deep security that comes with following you. We thank you for the ways in which Christ challenged these first disciples, that they might be ready for all that lies ahead. We ask now, Father, that you draw near to us and strengthen us, that we might follow you for all you call us to in the days ahead. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.